And when he, Jesus, returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. This will set the stage for us that Jesus comes back from his trip and he is crowded all into that house. You may have noticed that successful people, even if they are rather pleasant, as they reach a certain level of success, they can start to turn into curmudgeons. They start to get grumpy. They start to get grouchy. Maybe the first time you had a meeting with your boss, he was a little hostile to you. And then he had to calm down. And oh, it turns out he's not so bad after all. This happens because successful people very often have a relationship with most people where people want something from them. Maybe you have this relationship with your children. Every time they tell hey, dad, what do you want? Can't I just talk to my dad when I don't want to? You sure can, but I'll bet you want something. There's probably a request buried in there somewhere. Maybe if you're a boss, you're like, well, I have to be that way. These people are crazy. Exactly. You know what I'm talking about? Maybe you've seen a very famous actor or musician that when they're interviewed, it's almost like they just want to get out of there as fast as possible because everybody who ever meets them wants something, whether you need money from somebody. Talk about lottery winners who all of a sudden discover relatives and never knew they ever had. It's like, I just wanted to call upon my family and see how you were doing, you know? Or they need connections. Like, can you introduce me to so-and-so? Or do you know a good way to go about doing this? And, you know, it, it's not surprising that certain people turn into grumpy men or grumpy women. You ever seen that movie, Secondhand Lions, where Michael Caine and Robert Duvall are sitting on their porch, and they got millions and millions of dollars, and everybody knows it, and all day long, traveling salesmen roll up. Now, their solution was to fire a shotgun at everybody that rolled up, and it made for a funny movie, but thankfully, Jesus wasn't quite that way. Jesus, if there's ever anybody that all they wanted from Jesus was help. They, they know, you ever worry like, man, do, do they really like me for me? You know, there, there's a song that Catelyn and I like goes, do you like that you love me? Is this how we got to do these things, right? It's like, do you, are you just here because you like me or just like me for my money or just because I'm pretty or what is it? Do you think Jesus ever dealt with that in his flesh? Like I, I, all everybody ever wants, they don't love me because it's me. They love me because I can heal them or I can provide food for them. Thankfully, he was the son of God and he was willing to endure that. But when it says Jesus returned and was home, the, literally, literally there it says, when he was in the house or at the house in Capernaum, which means this was probably Peter's house, which is the house he had stayed at before when he was in Capernaum. Jesus was from Nazareth. He wasn't from there. And the last place we saw him lodging in Capernaum, the last house they talked about was Peter's house where he healed Peter's mother-in-law. So I think the story is just a little more funny when you realize this was Peter's house and also that Peter was married, and also that his mother-in-law lived there. That just makes the story a little more interesting. But Jesus was mobbed, man. No room, it says, even at the door. That means everybody filled in every possible space in the house. They open up the door. People were crowded in at the door to listen. And even still, you couldn't get close enough to hear what he was saying. And it says that Jesus was there teaching them the word. Now that's good. Because so far, we've seen that the crowds have prevented the ministry of Jesus being able to teach. We saw this last time that Jesus decided to move on from Capernaum to the surrounding villages because he knew all anybody's going to want is a miracle. 
And I'm not going to get a chance to teach this word. Jesus came to do miraculous works, as we're going to see tonight, but he needed to preach that gospel. So it's good that even though there's a crowd, there's enough respect, maybe because it was Peter's house. Maybe his mother-in-law was loud enough to get everybody to be quiet. I don't know. But they're listening to him. However, the fact remains that most people still only view Jesus as a miracle worker, as a faith healer. And we're going to see in a moment that that's kind of how he was being treated. And, you know, not much has changed after about 2,000 years. You know, Jesus is still viewed by most people as a means to an end. I don't serve Jesus or go to church or worship or pray for Jesus' sake. I worship Jesus and serve him and pray so that I can get something. Now, most of us are not going to be as crass as all that. Most of us are not going to come out and say it. All right, Jesus, what do you got for me? Now, you scroll through the internet long enough, you might find somebody that says exactly that. But people view Jesus as a means to an end. What can he do for me? I mean, we just talked about some of these things that people go to successful people for. People say, where can I get success? Will Jesus help me be successful? You know, the business bros online that are always looking for something to get a leg up on the competition. And, you know, if there's a Bible verse that'll help with that, I'm down with Jesus, man. Whatever helps me climb that ladder and get up to the top. Some people, they serve Jesus because they want money. Now, there are some people that are very poor. They don't have money. So there are pastors that will prey upon their desire and their need for provision and preach a gospel that Jesus is going to help you get more money. And so these people develop a conception of Christ only as somebody who's doling out money every once in a while. And if you don't get it, well, that's just because you didn't have enough faith. It's a very dangerous, dangerous idea. It makes a complete mockery of the fact that God is indeed our provider and that the Lord does bring prosperity to his people, but it gets twisted into something it's not. Some people view Jesus as if he can help me and my people, my nation, my group, whatever it is, then I'm all down with Jesus. But if he can't, then we'll find somebody else who can. And you see this all the time, too. You get folks that turn their relationship with Jesus, their religion, into a political movement. And you see this. There's all sorts of, they're called liberation theologies. There's black liberation theology, uh, Latino liberation theology, female liberation theology, whatever it is. Whatever various groups. It's all an offshoot of the same progressive postmodern thing you know about. A little older than uh, what we see today. But they, they define everything as Jesus is a symbol to lift us up out of oppression and into the so-called promised land, which usually amounts to some sort of utopia that they're going to bring about, some sort of economic thing. And this has long been understood as a distortion of the gospel because these same people, if they find another religion or another idea that will get them there, they have no problem jettisoning Jesus. These are the people that will say things like, we got to stop relying on savior narratives in the church. It's like, buddy, that's all we've got in the church. <laughs> Jesus Christ is our Lord and what? Savior. So come on, man. It's, if you're going to do this, go do it somewhere else is how I often feel. But this also can be people that see Jesus as a means to a miracle, which is what we're going to see tonight. Now, I believe in miracles. I've seen miracles. I've participated in miracles before the Lord, and it's awesome. And I love talking about them. However, there are some people that it seems like when they preach the gospel, all they've got is a gospel of miracles. He's like, Jesus died on the cross. And you know what that means? That means that you can get healed, friend. It's like, well, yes. But as we're going to see tonight, there's a, there's a hierarchy, there's a ranking of these things that should never be overturned. What can Jesus do for me? That's the wrong way to look at it. Jesus is Lord, not Santa Claus. 
And his words bring eternal life. Not just your best life, although don't get me wrong, Jesus wants to bless your life. My life following Jesus has not always been prosperous, but it's always been blessed. But Jesus' words bring everlasting life. In John chapter 6, this is funny, Jesus multiplied the loaves and the fishes. 5,000 people were fed, right? And Jesus gets in a boat and goes to the other side of the lake. Why? Because he was supposed to be on vacation during this time. But what did they do? They saw Jesus was gone. They hustled around to the other side of the lake and met him at the dock. That's called stalker is what that is. <laughs> well, when they see Jesus, they're like, wait a minute, how did you get here? He walked on water is the answer. But Jesus says in John 6, 26, Truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, meaning signs that prove that I am the Son of God, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Jesus knows, as every pastor knows, that if you want people to show up for something, you got to give away free food. <laughs> Ain't that the truth? If we got a banqueting table, we got a potluck, you got a little Chick-fil-A sign outside, people will line up to come to that event. Well, Jesus shows up and he sees that they're there because they, hey, we got fed yesterday, maybe we'll get fed again. You know, we had bread and fish yesterday, who knows what's on the menu? He's Jesus, he can do anything, right? And he says, you're not here because of who you believe I am. You're here because you want bread. This is also the same passage where he goes, are you hungry? You can eat my flesh and drink my blood. What does that mean? It means what it says. Eat my flesh and drink my blood. Otherwise, you can't be part of my kingdom. And they all left him. Why? Because they didn't want Jesus. They wanted bread. They wanted food. So we can say this. that It's good to not just chase Jesus for what he can give you. But let's be fair. On the other hand, where else are we supposed to go? When we have needs, when we need healing or provision, or we need help in life, where else are we supposed to go? Because Jesus did indeed come also to bring help. Salvation, yes, but also help from heaven. Isaiah 61, verse 1. This is the verse that Jesus quoted in his first sermon, which Mark didn't give us the text that he read from, but the other Gospels do. And this is what it says. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. Anybody need that sometimes? To proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. If Jesus can't help us or won't, well, who can? This story is so great because it is an example of how Jesus had patience with people who sought him for lesser reasons so that he could bring them to the knowledge of the truth. Sometimes, theologically-minded Christians can get judgy. Judgy of people who don't think th through things theologically like you do. People who say things like, prayer is not about getting an answer from God. What exactly is it then? <laughs> what did Jesus mean when he says, if you ask, you will receive? Well, prayer is just about resigning yourself to the fact that nothing's going to change and that's the way God wants it. What? Oh, just because people only seek God for his temporal blessings and not for his eternal ones. Well, that's true, but the temporal blessings are still real. And what Jesus wants to do is he is not afraid to use your temporal need to bring you to an eternal solution. And that's what's going to happen tonight. I don't want to be judgmental of people who need help and are looking for solutions. Because that's where all of us were before Jesus intervened. Amen? 
So here they are crowding Jesus in Peter's house. And verse 3, and they came, it's indefinite, so, and some guys came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they took a number and waited patiently in line for their turn. <laughs> they removed the roof above him. That's <laughs> such a tame way to put it. And when they had made an opening in the roof, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. Among all these sick and hurting people that were coming to hear Jesus, there was one paralytic, and that is the Greek word there, paralytikos. It's a transliteration. We don't know why he was paralyzed, what it might have been. He obviously couldn't walk, and that's the point here. And his friends are carrying him, seeking help from Jesus. And don't misunderstand, they were not the only ones that wanted healing from Jesus that day. Everybody wanted Jesus to help them with something. They show up and they say, where is he? He's in there. Oh, we're not going to get, yeah, you, we'll just have to wait until the sermon's over. And they say, nope, we're not doing that. And so rather than waiting, the, the text there literally in Greek, it's a, what's called a cognate accusative. means it uses the, verb, uh, the word as a verb and a noun. So literally it unroofed the roof. They de-roofed that roof is what they did. Now, here's how these houses were constructed. They were flat on the top. We'll read often in the Bible about them needing to have railings on the roof or having meetings on the roof because that was part of how they did it. And they would go up these stairs to the top of the roof, which would have been cross beams, plaster with straw in between. So it wasn't exactly a thatch roof. They would thatch, they would thatch it in between the cross beams and then put plaster on it. Well, the word that it actually uses there when it's unroofing the roof is they were digging into the roof. Now, these are some enthusiastic individuals, shall we say. They say, well, what's working? Listen on the roof. I think I can hear him. He's right down there. And they start digging into Peter's roof. And how long do you think it took him to notice while they were sitting in there, by the way? It's kind of like, what's going on up there? And, you know, everyone's trying to be all spiritual and not notice what's going on. And somebody's stretching to kind of take a look. And maybe even Jesus is like, what is going on up there? And then plaster starts falling. And now they're reaching down and pulling up pieces of the roof. And everyone's like, what's going on? And I wonder what Peter was saying. That's my house. Leave my roof alone. And they lowered this guy down. There was no room. So people were having to back up and push each other out of the way. And everybody in the back doesn't know what's going on. And they're you better make way. He's coming down one way or another. Right in front of Jesus, and they lowered him down. Now, it's so funny because we think of these people, and they were, don't get me wrong, as full of faith and spiritual people. These guys were kind of annoying, <laughs> weren't they? Like, these are people that don't know how to wait their turn. These are the guys that would cut you off because you're going 45 in a 35 because you wanted to go 46 or 47. Get out of my way. No patience. Hey, hey, us next. What about all these? Don't you understand? No, nope, they don't care about that. They just care about their buddy who can't walk. And as humorous as this may be, although perhaps it was not funny to Peter, who has to fix that roof, or Andrew, who maybe Peter would have made fix that roof, <laughs> or his mother-in-law, or his wife, it's like, okay, look, I love that you're following this Messiah guy, but now it's starting to affect the house. <laughs> but as funny as this is, you can see the desperation in their actions here. Love for their friend, pushing them to desperation, even to break protocol, even to not even wait. I mean, you would think they'd say, well, we're here. Eventually, he'll get to us. Maybe they've been waiting since the last time Jesus was in Capernaum, and they knew that Jesus snuck out last time. Jesus went away in the middle of the night, and we woke up, and he wasn't there. 
So he's not getting away this time. We know right where he is. We're going to dig him out like a hound dog chasing a rabbit. This is the reality of the world's pain. Remember I said a minute ago, we don't want to be judgy of people that are seeking Jesus for temporal reasons. That's because people are living hard lives. Not everybody, but all of us take a turn on that Ferris wheel every once in a while, don't we? And some people stay there for a long, long time. It's one thing to stand there and be all judgmental of people who are desperate for healing from the Lord. Well, maybe they're sick. Maybe they have somebody in their life. They're like, I'll rip up any roof if you want me to. I'll go to any preacher that says he can help somebody. I'll do anything if God says that's what he's going to do for me. What about people that are broke or poor or impoverished? I've been there. It's not fun. It's not fun. And I had plenty of good people around me that were able to help me. You know, we were young and we were, we were expecting better things to come. But that's not everybody's situation, man. And it's easy when you're sitting pretty to judge people that are obsessed with God providing prosperity to them. Because there are some people, prosperity is the furthest thing from their life. And if they hear somebody say that Jesus can give that to you, you've got their immediate attention. And, you know, as much as we want to blame some of these postmodernists that are trying to steal the gospel, when there are people who are oppressed and downtrodden, we can understand that. That's a hard place to be. If you're living a life where you're under the thumb of somebody, then it's difficult to say, oh, we'll just get along. It's all going to be okay. We need to have a little bit of compassion for these people. We can fault men for saying, you only want Jesus to help you. All right, fine. That's not the best way to go about it, but people do need help. Jesus in Matthew 9, 36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. Because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Maybe you turn on the news and you see some group of people that rubs you the wrong way and you know exactly what they need to do to get their life right. And maybe you're correct. Didn't everybody ever teach them? Maybe not. They're like sheep without a shepherd. Or maybe, like it says in Zechariah, there are false shepherds that are leading them away and strike the sheep and make it painful. And sometimes they even do it in the name of Jesus. So that not only are they driving people away from the truth, they're driving away from the one who can give them the truth. Like sheep without a shepherd. That's why Jesus was not afraid to give of his own self to help people, to actually help people. Desperation, born of hurt, has driven multitudes to the kingdom of heaven. And in fact, without that desperation, you're never going to get there. They were digging through the roof. Nothing stood in their way. Maybe if we were to look at our situation here, maybe they wouldn't be tearing through this roof. But what if we're all packed in, you can barely get out, and then somebody starts breaking through the glass? Get out of the way! We've got a man here that needs to be healed. Now, I would hope some of our you know, ushers would step up and handle that if it did happen. But what are you supposed to do in that moment? When they're trying to drag somebody on a stretcher who can't walk or somebody who's sick and desperate. When they need Jesus now, they understood. Jesus in Matthew 11, I'm not going to read the verse for you right now, but he talks about how the kingdom of God is coming violently and the violent are taking it by force. Now, is Jesus talking about the kingdom of God being under attack? No. He's using it as an image to describe that the kingdom of God is being besieged by people who are desperate for it. And the people who are finding it are the ones whose dedication and devotion to finding Christ can be described as violent. Now, it's a metaphor. Don't, don't misunderstand that, all right? 
He's not talking about swords and bullets here. He's talking about those that are willing to rip up the roof to get to Jesus. If only Jesus can help you, you can't let anything stand in your way. You must be willing to sacrifice to find the Lord. Sacrifice your time. You know, this is cheap to say, and y'all are here on a Wednesday night, so I can say it, and you can know I'm not talking about you. But man, we'll sit through a three-hour movie, and the preacher goes longer than 45 minutes. We start shifting in our seat. What's taking so long? Well, we need people to help out with the Discovery Club or help out in the prison. But man, that's, like, that's a whole afternoon or evening a week. I got TV to watch, man. <laughs> you know? I got things to do. Sometimes we don't want to sacrifice our reputation. Yeah, I know that, that the gospel is true, but look, my, my friends, we run in circles where we don't really talk that way. So I'll just kind of keep it to myself and you know, say some real respectable things so they'll leave me alone. Or yeah, I know that that's the church that, that God is blessing. And I know that's where people love the Lord. And the one I go to, it's kind of shallow and superficial, but this is where people go to be known in the community. So I'm going I'm to stay here. Even sacrificing money and status. Did Jesus tell everybody to sell all that you have and give it to the poor? No, but there's some of us to whom that applies. We can be so generous to other people, but when it comes to the Lord, all of a sudden we turn into Ebenezer Scrooge. But when you know that Jesus is the only one that can help you, there's nothing that can stand in your way. There was a fellow that got saved in our home church back in Virginia, and he had got arrested. He had been selling drugs and growing drugs in his house and all these things. And uh, he came to my dad, and who we had been praying for this guy for a long time to come to the Lord and be saved. And he finally was. And so he kind of wanted to have a meeting, like, all right, what is this Christian thing here? What am I supposed to do? Tell me the rules. So my dad's kind of walking through with him, and he's like taking notes, writing things down. And okay, so come to church. I'm going to come to church. All right, don't do this. And then he says, now what about tithing? Now my father, like a good diplomatic man that he is, doesn't want to lay it on real thick on day one. So he's like, look, well, look, the Bible tells us that we should give generously. It doesn't give us an amount. And he's, you know, very theological message. And the guy just holds up his hand and goes, Pastor, just tell me what to do. And so my dad said, I, I believe, well, my wife and I, we give 10%. He goes, got it. Writes it down. No questions. Now, is there a more nuanced answer to that? Yeah, but I love that guy's attitude. He's like, look, man, I was just on death's doorstep. Satan had me by the throat and Jesus saved me. Tell me what to do, yeah. right? That's what it takes. That's ripping up the roof, my friends. Jeremiah 29, 13, the Lord said, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. All your heart. This is what we call zeal, to be zealous. It means to have a burning desire to find the remedy, not just for your hurt, but for your life. And we live in a day of quick outrage and fleeting passions. We've kind of got our emotions timed to the release schedule of whatever thing we're into. So let me ask you, do you have what it takes to get to Jesus? You ever have somebody tell you, don't take no for an answer? I'm one of those people that when I hear that, I go, oh, this is going to be uncomfortable. <laughs> I go get in there and tell them you need this. Don't take no for an answer. All right, dad. You know, my dad's real forceful. I had to grow into that a little bit, right? But these are guys that wouldn't take no for an answer. Some of us might show up and say, well, yeah, Jesus can help me, but look at the line. Well, Jesus can help me, but I don't want to be a bother. I know he's real busy. Jesus can help me, but I mean, you know, we're up on the roof. We can kind of hear him, but how are we supposed to get in? The Lord tells us to be zealous means I'll fix the roof later. I'll pay him back. Right now, we need Jesus' help. Their example is good for us. What did Jesus have to say? Verse 5. And when Jesus saw their insolence, no. <laughs> when Jesus saw their faith, 
He said to the paralytic son, maybe he was young then, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning. The word is dialogue. They were debating in their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Oh, you're onto something, fellas. And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? Jesus was uh, not a soft person. He was gentle. He was tough as nails, wasn't he? Calls these guys out before they even said anything. Jesus saw their faith. He said, man, these people really and truly believe that I can heal their friend. That's amazing. Now, that word for their faith could be inclusive of all five of them, including the paralytic. But it's also a great example of how your faith can count for your friends. Pray for people and believe that the Lord will answer you. But we're going to see several times in chapter 6 and then again in chapter 9 where healing is going to be tied to faith. Do some people overblow that? Yeah, but it's still there and it's still important. We'll address that at another time. But instead of healing this man, which he could have done, and he had healed countless people already, he'd been on a preaching and healing tour of Galilee, he says, your sins are forgiven. I wonder what that was like in the room. Apparently it had some kind of an effect. Because the scribes were critical of Jesus. I wonder if the scribes were there because they had heard about this traveling rabbi. And it was their job as the scribe, meaning they were the ones that wrote down the law, studied the law, understood the law, knew all about the Old Testament. And here comes this newfangled preacher. Let's find out what he has to say. It's a good thing that they're doing that. That's what a good teacher will do. But they hear him say, your sins are forgiven. And inside they go, oh, there you go. I knew it. I knew this guy. No one can forgive sins. It says, but God alone, literally, and I kind of like this translation better. It says, but the one God. So God alone is still true. It's like the, God is one, right? Deuteronomy 6, there's one God, and he's the only one who can forgive sins. And they begin to criticize Jesus in their heart, not even out loud, right? But Jesus, it says, perceived. Now, was this just an impression from the Holy Spirit upon his heart? I'm inclined to think so. Or it could be that Jesus knew how to read a room and knew what these guys were like. And here's them go, kind of whispering. You can't say that. I told you this guy was trouble. And he's like, hey, what's your problem? What? What did we say? We didn't say anything. I know what you're thinking. You, he knows what we're thinking, right? Why are you thinking, oh, who can forgive sins? He says, what, what would you rather me do? First of all, he's going to be real practical. It's, it's real easy to say your sins are forgiven because how are you going to double check? Right? But if I say, pick up your bed and walk, well, we're going to know real quick if he got healed or not. So he's like, which would you rather me say to this poor man? It's very interesting. You prefer me try to haul him up in front of everybody? Now, what's ironic about this statement? It's actually harder to forgive sins than to say or to heal somebody. You can heal a body, but who can heal a soul but God alone? So in that sense, they were right. But for, he's, he's being critical of their critical spirit here. But he's going to use it to teach a big lesson. Forgiving sins is the greater work, even though its evidence is difficult to see. It's one thing to fix somebody's body, but who can fix a soul? This is what Jesus said to the woman at the well in John chapter 4. That spunky woman that Jesus met at the well. 
who was kind of debating with Jesus and trying to start something. You read that. And Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus says, yeah, thirst is a problem. But you know what's more important? Eternal life. That's what he's saying here. Now, this is not what this man came for. He did not come to have his sins forgiven. He came to be healed. They didn't rip up the roof so that this guy could have his sins forgiven. And I, I imagine in the hearts of these guys, there might have been a little disappointment. We just ripped up that roof for nothing. Who does this guy think he is? I don't want him to be forgiven. I want him to be healed. I want him to walk again. Maybe the guy sitting on the bed his, was a little crestfallen when he heard that. But Jesus knew that this is what this man, and indeed all of us, really needed. We really need forgiveness. Because sin is the trouble behind the trouble. What sin? It's, it's not hard to understand. It's when you do something that is not in line with God's truth. When you do something wrong. Kids can understand that. Micah, or sorry, my, my son Samuel is two years old. What sin? He goes, something bad. There you go. <laughs> Doing something bad. I don't like when the church calls people sinners. Well, you don't believe everybody's perfect, do you? Well, no, then we're in agreement. That's the problem. Sin is the trouble. It's the cause of all pain and all sickness. Going all the way back to the Garden of Eden, the Lord cursed the world because of sin. But even more than that, there are plenty of sicknesses and ailments and afflictions that come as a direct result from our bad decisions. And I'm not even talking about curses from heaven now. I'm talking about somebody that destroys their body through overindulgence in alcohol. I'm talking about somebody who is reckless and has no wisdom and acts foolishly and ends up injuring themselves permanently. I'm talking about somebody who has no concept of being loving and kind in a marriage and blows up their family. I'm talking about somebody who's rebellious and brings pain into their life because nobody trusts them anymore. Sin does that. And there are times where the Lord afflicts people because of their sin. All heartache, all sorrow comes from sin. When's the last time there was pain in your life, emotional relationship pain, that was not because of sin? Well, I didn't do nothing wrong. Okay, but who did? Somebody did, right? You never hear a story, well, everything was going really, really great, and then all of a sudden, we hated each other. That's not how it works. Somebody did something or failed to do something. Somebody said something. Somebody wasn't showing respect. Somebody wasn't showing love. That's sin. All evils in the world, even that sense of complacency, that blah feeling that you get about life sometimes. What's the point of waking up another day? Because the world is full of sin. It's full of wickedness. And at some level, we all know this, especially if you're like me and you, you, your thoughts just kind of circle, circle, circle down sometimes. And you're like, well, so we're all just going to die anyway. You have that Ecclesiastes moment, right? Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. Well, it's true. It's true. Life is short. Life is hard. And there are a lot of good moments. But there's a lot of painful ones. So how do we deal with it? What do we do with this problem? Well, there's three ways I can put out here, and there's probably more that you could say that people try to do by, to fix this. Number one is the most common and, and probably healthy way is you try to overwhelm the bad feelings. 
Just try to do well in life. Do your best. Be thankful for what you have. Try to take time and smell the roses and, and live a good life. All right, I really have nothing bad to say about that. It's just incomplete. Because the idea is we will overwhelm the bad parts of life by focusing on the good parts and making more of them as much as possible. Not just in my life, but in everybody else's life. All right, that's one way. But life will hit you hard, man. Life will step in and hit you hard. And what are you going to do then? Number two, we try to explain them away. This is what Buddhism tries to do, for example. See, your problem, Mr. Suffering Man, is that you think the suffering is real. You need to stop thinking about it. You need to stop wanting things. You know, you're poor and you're broke, yes, but the problem isn't that you're poor, it's that you want money. So just stop wanting money and all your problems will go away. But I'm sick and I'm dying. Well, why do you want to be healthy? If you just didn't care if you were sick or not, then you'd be okay. How sick is that? That's why rich people really like Buddhism, by the way. But it's not even just that. Philosophers will do that. It's all just neurons firing anyway. It doesn't mean anything. Close yourself off as much as possible. That's just life. It's the way it is. Or the third thing that we'll do is we'll rage against the pain of life. We'll see people that just cannot come to terms with the fact that the world is full of darkness and the darkness even lives in me. So we rage against God. We rage against the state. We rage against our family. We rage against ourselves, the ones that love us. You know the problem with all three of these approaches? Overwhelming the bad feelings, explaining them away, or just raging against them? Nothing changes. Nothing gets better. Nothing is improved. And we say, well, that's just the human condition. That's just the way things are. You're right, that's the way things are. But that's not the way things are supposed to be. And friends, that's not the way things have to be. And it's not the way things are going to be when Jesus gets involved. Jesus came to offer a clean slate. Do you know that if you're here and you're one of those folks, I hear this all the time. People think they're clever. It's all right. When they say, oh, pastor, you don't want me coming to your church. The minute I walk through that church, I'm going to get a lightning bolt through my head. I'm going to, that church is going to collapse on top of me. You don't know what kind of thing. Okay, well, I'll come. Dads will say this a lot. I'll come with the family. Kids need a little religion. They need a little, but you know, I'm, I'm too far gone. But if I can help them, that's all that's needed. Jesus wants to offer you a clean slate. He's offering you forgiveness of sins. There are even folks that have been in the church forever. I mean, I'm like deacons and elders now that think they have some sort of pocket deal with God where I'll do my best, Lord, but you and I both know someday we're going to have to settle up for that awful thing that I did. That's a shame that we have to carry burdens like that. And when we do that, when we walk around carrying these sins without letting Jesus wash them away, we start to get bitter against people that are walking in the liberty Christ has provided. So what are you so happy for? I don't like all this exuberant worship and all this celebratory church. Don't they know how hard things are? It's like, buddy, I'm going to heaven when I die. I've been forgiven. This, this thing isn't going to count one day. It's all going to be gone. He wants to give you a new heart. The Lord wants to not only erase the old stuff, but to send you his Holy Spirit and change your heart so that now all the new things are going to get better and better and better. Forgiveness from God. Now that's a harder thing to say. And that's even a harder thing to accept. Many people are more than willing to say, thank you, Jesus, if an unexpected check comes in the mail. But if you say, Jesus has forgiven your sins and God really loves you, they'll say, oh, you don't know what I've done. Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians 12. Even when his hardness, or his hardship was not corrected, 
He was praying for the Lord to heal him. But the Lord said to me, Paul wrote, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. Who boasts of their weaknesses? Who puts it like an like a awesome track behind you and gets on, hey, I'm weak, man. I'm weaker than you. Nobody's weak like me. You ain't never met anybody with weakness like this before. <laughs> Who does that? Nobody. But Paul did. So that the power of Christ might rest upon me. You ever, and I, we all can drift into this, but let's just give a little caution against it. You ever hear somebody talking so much about the power of God in their life that it really kind of starts to edge into talking about the power that they have and how awesome I am? So he continues, for the sake of Christ then, hear this, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Who talks like that? Who comes in and says, I'm content with weakness? I might be okay with weakness, but I'll tell you, that, that insult thing, that, that gets to me, man. I just, I can get like Gollum, like looking at the insult. Like, I can't believe they said that to me. And you're kind of rocking back and forth. Like, if they were here right now, I'll tell you what I'd say to them. And that's, that's hard, man. There are many people that like, I'd rather get beat up for Jesus than to have people say nasty things about me online. But Paul comes in and says, when I'm weak, oh, did I prick a nerve there with somebody? Not you, somebody you know, I'm sure. Because when I'm weak, then I'm strong. That's what Jesus does. Lord, I need healing. He says, no, what you need is forgiveness. Because then, like Paul, it doesn't matter if you never get up out of that mat. You are right with God and your entire outlook and your entire mentality and your whole heart is ready to change. Jesus loves you enough to sometimes even say no to what you want so that he can give you what you need. And he paid with his blood to provide it for you. Isn't that something? Can we do a better job, myself included, this next election cycle around of representing this attitude to the world. Preaching it myself a little bit here. When I'm weak, then I'm strong. Oh, we're fading, we're failing. Good, because when I'm weak, then I'm strong. How do they say that about us? Oh, I'm content with insults. Because when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Persecution is coming. It may be, but when we're weak, we're strong. The world will look at us and not have any idea what to do. That's what it means to follow Christ. When you say, Lord, I need your help, is no, what you need is my forgiveness. It's a better thing. But guess what? Jesus is not done. Verse 10. He's over here blessing out these scribes, but he says, But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. Now, you look at verse 10. Here's a little textual note. The question is, in verse 10, when it says, but that you may know, is that Jesus talking or is that the narrator giving us a little parenthesis here? But that you, dear reader, may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Either way, he says, who has authority to forgive sins but God alone? He goes, why are you so prickly? <laughs> Which is harder to say, you're forgiven or stand up. But you know what? So that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. Get up and walk. He uses the exact same words he used previously, and now he says them in an active statement. This is also, by the way, the first time in the Gospel of Mark Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. Why does he do that? Well, 
two reasons. Number one, to be a son of man, a ben adam from the Old Testament, just meant to be a human, right? Ezekiel is often called by the Lord the son of man. However, there's another meaning to that in Daniel, when it says that the son of man will come riding on the clouds of heaven and establish the kingdom of God. So it's Jesus's way of revealing who he is, but also concealing who he is. Almost like plausible deniability. Either way, Jesus healed this man. He said exactly what everybody in the room sheepishly agreed would have been too difficult to say to this man. And to the astonishment of them all, the paralytic was healed. You know, some people accuse the church and accuse the gospel of saying, all you ever do is tell people things are going to get better in heaven and you never help people now. First of all, Christians help people all the time. We just don't brag or boast about it. But nothing could be further from the truth, even as far as God is concerned. It is Christ's intervention to heal, to provide, and to restore that evidences the truth of his salvation. How do we know that in the sweet by and by we will be there with the Lord? Because he intervenes in our lives now. Can anybody testify and say, Jesus has intervened in my life and touched my body and touched my life and touched my family? We all have that story. I have that story. Everybody in here does. And in fact, in James chapter 5, the apostle James, Jesus' brother, tells us not just to seek the Lord's salvation, but to seek the Lord's intervention. He says, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of the faith, prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, he'll be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. For the prayer of a righteous man has great power. Do you like that? In the book of James, one of the most practical books of the New Testament, which most of which is quit fighting with each other. Control your tongue, would you? He comes at the end and says, now, if you're sick, what do you do? I'll get the church to pray for you, of course, and then you'll be healed. How do you say that, James? Hey, man, when a righteous man prays, there's power. Let's look at Elijah. When Elijah prayed, it didn't even rain for 18 months. So he wasn't any different than you or I. The Lord intervenes. And not only does he intervene, we are taught to seek his intervention. In this very room, we have seen healing. We've seen people whose bodies were touched. We've seen it at the men's retreat last year. We saw a man have a cancerous tumor removed in his head instantly. Didn't even have to go through with his surgery. We've seen people's backs been healed and their knees been healed and their, their heads and ears and all manner of things. This is real. We've seen provision in this room. How many can say that God miraculously provided for you at one time in your life? There you go. I can say that. How many stories are there? They almost become tedious where somebody like, God gave me the exact amount of money I needed just in time. That happens all the time. The Lord provides for our needs. I mean, among other things, the Lord has provided a family of people to help each other and help provide for one another. How many of you can say God has restored a relationship in your life that you thought was busted and gone forever? Hallelujah. I'll say that. I'll totally say that. This is real. No one who came to Jesus was ever turned away. Do you love that? Many came to Jesus and he healed them all. We should not expect God's default response to our needs to be no. 
There's preachers that preach that way. And they think they're sparing people's feelings. I don't want people to get excited and pray and then nothing happen. What kind of faith is that? Well, there are people that go crazy with that whole thing. Sure they do, but I'm not going to let them or you rob me of the truth of what the scripture says. Some people hold up the fact of salvation and say, see, because we're saved and we're going to heaven, we don't need God to meet all of our needs. Well, guess what? Jesus in this story says him meeting this man's needs was proof to them all that he could indeed forgive sins. It is a testimony to the power of God's salvation. Makes no sense to me when people say things like that. I want to manage the expectations of the church. I want you to come to prayer with the Lord expecting that he is going to answer you. And if the prayer is not answered, what do we do? You do what Jesus taught us to do and keep praying and never lose heart. Jesus taught us that. Luke chapter 18. He taught them a parable that they ought always to pray and never lose heart. I love what the New Living Translation says. They should always pray and never give up. Well, isn't, shouldn't we just be content with the salvation of the Son? Well, yeah, but Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? What's he saying? If God is willing to give you his Son, Jesus, is he going to hold out on you for a couple bucks? Or for a quick healing? Is he going to hold out on you when you want something fixed and corrected in your life? When you want to see your, your, your influence expand, maybe? When you want to find a good wife or a good husband? Is God going to keep those things from you? Now, there are times where God says no, but the Bible teaches us that we should expect that yes is the default response. He didn't spare his own son. Now, if you come to my house and say, hey, Tyler, can I have one of your kids? Yeah, sure, here you go. And you go, oh, sorry, can I also borrow a cup of sugar? How dare you ask me for a cup of sugar? What do you think I am? How dare you come? Well, you already gave me your son. Well, that was then and this is now. <laughs> Answers to prayer are evidence that God still saves souls. Don't be afraid to ask. And please don't be afraid to testify. You got to tell people about what God has done for you. You got to tell people about the sin that God delivered you from. Because there might be somebody in their seat right now squirming and struggling under that same thing. And you standing up and saying, God has delivered me from that. will give them the faith they need to walk it out. Or how God touched your body. Or how God did something miraculous in your life. Or provided for you. 2 Corinthians 1 tells us that God comforts us in all of our affliction. So that we can comfort those that are walking through the same affliction. Don't be afraid to ask or to testify. I better come to an end here. Verse 12, we'll finish off verse 12. They were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. That word for amazed can, in some contexts, mean beside themselves. Literally means to lay alongside is that word. So I'm, I was beside myself. There was a, apparently a rather eager response to this moment. It wasn't like, you know, those cartoons you watch when you're a kid. Everyone goes, oh. Wow. They're like, whoa! <laughs> what is this? Who is this guy? And they're all shouting and, and exuberant and exalted and excited. Peter, you can never fix that roof, man. That's got to stay forever as a testimony of God's goodness. And he said, well, we'll talk about that, you know, and see. 
And God was glorified. The Lord was exalted in this place. And by saying they all, it could mean that even the scribes came around on this one. Might not be. Might be just a general way of speaking. But God was glorified. That's always Christ's goal. That's why he wanted to make sure he could depart and leave so that he didn't just become, you know, a vending machine for people, but they were getting glory to the Lord. And as his reputation spread, we're going to see more and more people come to Jesus. And this story, in a sense, is going to start all over again, where somebody has heard that Jesus can help and they come to Jesus radically full of faith. And then he's going to give them the spiritual answer to their problem and then help them. And then his reputation will grow more and more people will come. And that continues even to this day. The more you hear what Christ has done, especially when we go to other countries, when we go to Nepal and we talk about them, um, they're still worshiping millions of gods over there, like full on idolatry. But when they find out that Jesus is able to do what these other gods can't do, they abandon their gods. And they say, you got to come and pray in Jesus' name. Even people that aren't really born again will say, well, I've heard you pray in Jesus' name. They'll help you. That's a reputation that has been won over centuries of God's faithfulness. The lesson from this story is really only one thing. You've got to rip up the roof. You've got to get to Jesus any way you can. Now, you might be saved here, but this can also apply to that next step that the Lord wants you to take with him. Because not only is miraculous help available, but so is eternal salvation. And you can spare no effort in getting to it. Have you ever found that when you're in a dry season and you want to draw near to God, it's almost like the Lord is teasing you? When you've had those amazing dynamic prayer times and worship with the Lord and you're laid out on the carpet and you can barely breathe, God is so good. And then you go through a season where like, I can barely read half a chapter of scripture this morning. And like, Lord, I want to I experience you, encounter you again. And it almost feels like that, that, that presence that you love so much is right on the edge. Like, Lord, get back here. Where are you going? It's almost like the Lord is teasing you, like when your kids are first learning to walk, right? Like, come get me. Come get me. You back up like this. And, you know, mom will say, no, let him get you. I'm like, no, he has to learn, right? That's what the Lord will do with us. He calls us forward. He calls us on. And if we're going to then plop to the ground and start pouting and crying, then you're going to be stuck. Matthew 13, it's a pair of parables Jesus gave, verses 44 through 46. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. I love that story. Imagine some guy's working, he's plowing the ground, and all of a sudden, clunk, what is that? And he digs it up, and it's a treasure chest. And there's a whole bunch of treasure, like the Count of Monte Cristo. He's set for life now. He goes, ah, okay. And he kind of covers that back up. He says, hey, uh, how, how much would you take for this property? Oh, it's a pretty penny. Whatever it would, would cost. I, you know, I guess $500,000. Okay, well, I'll get back to you. He gets home, honey, we need to get $500,000 now. What, where are we going to get it? Sell the house. Sell the house. What are we going to do? We won't need it. <laughs> We're not going to need it. Sell the clothes. Sell the animals. Sell the stuff. Get rid of all of it. Pawn your shoes. Let's go. Let's get out of here. Okay, we finally got it. You sure you want to buy it? It's just a, a piece of land. Yeah, yeah, I'll buy it. Because why? Because he knows that it's worth more than anybody else realizes. That there's something there that is worth giving up everything. Jesus continues in verse 46. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. When finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. 
How worth, how much is Jesus worth? How much is it worth to receive not just help, but eternal salvation from Jesus? It's worth everything you got. Everything you've got. We admire people that give everything, don't we? One of my favorite sports heroes growing up was Kobe Bryant. And when he passed away, I went online and watched as many videos about him as I can. And what everybody commented about him afterwards was his work ethic. Like that dude was crazy. He would show up to the gym at two in the morning and practice for three hours. We'd show up at seven o'clock. He's already icing his knees. And then he practices again all day long. And then we play the game that night. And then before we're done, he's getting ready for his midnight, his midnight uh, workout again. This dude was crazy. And like, that's what made him so good is he just worked at it. And we look at man, that's, that's the way it's got to be. And if you're like me, you go, and that's how I'm going to be from now on. <laughs> By the end of this week, I'll have written 20 books and I'll have enormous muscles and my house will have an extra story on top. It doesn't always happen that way, does it? But we understand the value of giving everything you've got for a worthy goal. What's more worthy than the kingdom of heaven? What in the world is so precious that you would hold on to it at the expense of your forgiveness? And a lot of times, there are things that seem real important, but on your deathbed, they're not going to seem so important, will they? I'm not going to let Jesus steal my fun. Really. I like going out. I like partying. That's who I am. And if Jesus doesn't like it, he can't have me. Like we're getting something over on Jesus. Like he needs us to build him up. We sound foolish when we say things like that. Look, yeah, I, I, I have high respect for religion. You know, it's all great, but you know, I'm just, I'm just trying to make my money. When I make my money, maybe we'll, uh, maybe we'll figure it out. Well, how much? How much? John Rockefeller was asked, how much money will be enough for you? He said, just a little bit more. That's always the answer, isn't it? Just a little more. Just a little more. Look at the things you have now. The day you got them, you were just so ecstatic. And if broke, you know, college age you could see what you have now, you'd be, whoa! Now you're like, stupid truck doesn't even, doesn't even have flames on the side of it, you know? <laughs> and yeah, I've, I've got a nice house, but look at his house, man. That's just not right. We hold on to these things. Or it could be experiences. I just want to see the world first. I didn't see the world until I met Jesus, by the way. <laughs> but not only that, when you get what you need from Jesus, that forgiveness, you get what you want also. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly, the Bible says. Jesus loves you. And can I go a step further? Jesus likes you. He likes you. Like, I don't even like me. Yeah, but Jesus died for you. Oh, I have those moments all the time. Like, I do not get why Jesus would die for me. The Lord goes, you don't have to get it. I just love you that much. You know, people, people who don't have children sometimes will say things where like, I would never let my kids do that, or I would never. And they have all these opinions about parenting. It's like, you don't understand. Once you're holding a little version of you in your arms, everything changes. You're letting that kid just run wild. It's like, yeah, well, maybe I can work on that. But you know what? I love that kid. And nothing will ever let me stop loving that kid. That's how Jesus feels about you. So like, we think, I'm giving up everything I've got just for this one miserable little field. Yeah, but in the, in the belly of that field is treasure, man. And you're going to be a rich man. You're going to be blessed beyond comparison. So then you need to ask yourself, what barriers are keeping you from Jesus? 
For these folks, it was the crowd. It was the scribe sitting right there. It was the roof. The reputation that they might gain from this. They didn't care. So what about you? Is it people? What's keeping you from going all in with Jesus? Being a Christian. Loving the Lord and doing it right. The way you know you're supposed to. Is it people? You're feeling left out? You're feeling excluded? Do you know that you will be excluded the day you fully give yourself to Jesus? That happens. I'm not going to tell you it doesn't. You will be left out. You will have find people that you thought were your best friends. All of a sudden, they disliked you as a drinking buddy and they can find somebody else. You're going to find that the people that you used to gossip with are now gossiping about you. But are you going to let that keep you from God? From God? Sometimes one of the other stupid things we say, well, if, my, if I go to heaven, my friends aren't there, I don't want to be there. Wow. It's a really adolescent thing to say, isn't it? There are some people who haven't thought much about God since they were adolescents and they still say the same things. Is it inability? Maybe you've got such a tragic story and maybe you've done some things that would cause a few eyebrows to go up if you told your story. Kind of hard to shock me now after as many stories I've heard over the years doing ministry. Every, there's always some high school student. I was a high school pastor for seven years and they always thought they were going to blow my mind. And after a while, it's like, yeah, you probably guess what's going on. So imagine how Jesus feels. I could not come to you. That's an old hymn, right? I could not come to him. But he came to you. The Lord can't save me because I can't save myself. Well, it's not about you saving yourself. It's about you receiving what Jesus has. Is it some sin, some sorrow in your heart that's keeping you down? Is it the, the fleeting hope that there might be something else? But what if there's something better than this? You play that game your whole life. I can't tell you how many folks have come to this church saying, man, I just spent 50 years chasing something, couldn't find it, and it was right back in church where I should have started. Anybody say amen to that? Tear those things up, man. Rip up that roof and get in that house. If you need help from Jesus, get to Jesus. Go to him. Be around his people. Be in his word. Intercede daily. Call on his name. Now, he might first try to teach you something about your heart and your soul before he gets to answering that prayer, but he's not going to leave you hanging, I promise you. You know, I went to Liberty University, and so we always heard a bunch of really cool Jerry Falwell stories, and he talks about when there was a very serious problem. They were in big financial difficulty at Liberty University, and so he went on a 40-day fast. It's amazing, especially if you knew what he looked like, that you'd go on a 40-day fast. And he said that for those first 40 days, the Lord has not given him any answer or any relief on the financial situation they were facing. And I mean like millions and millions of dollars, lots of zeros. He said, but I learned along the way, the Lord says, I just want you to get close to me for 40 days. So what did he do? He finished that fast and had no answer. And then the Lord said, okay, now let's do that again, and this time I'll help you. That's how the Lord does it quite a bit, I've found. That's how we did it in this story here. Jesus Christ not only offers forgiveness, he bought it with his blood on the cross. How serious is he about this? Serious enough to die. And he sent his Holy Spirit to dwell within you, to partner with his people and bring the same help to you that he brought to the world. Whatever you won't give up to follow Jesus is what you have to give up in order to find Jesus. But let me tell you, once you rip up that roof and you get down in that house, your whole world is going to change.